RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 317, Civil Defense. Welcome into Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Ken Ray. Mission Log is a show with a mission to examine each and every episode of Star Trek for big ideas, for messages and meanings, and seeing whether we think it holds up today. This week, Civil Defense, the one where DS9 goes Ed 209 on Cisco and Company. Also, cameos by Gul Dukat, Gul Dukat, and Gul Dukat, along with a special appearance by Gul Dukat. I've got trivia coming up in a bit, but first... But first, I'm going to let you know how to get in touch with us. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Uh, It's an episode of Mission Log. It's an episode of Star Trek. That means there's going to be trivia, and the guy who's going to bring it to you, the man who is going to bring it to you. Bring it, please, Mr. John Champion. Wow, your powers of prediction uh, are, are second only to your powers of the transition. Thank you, Ken. Trivia for today's episode, Civil Defense. Well, it was written by Mike Crone. Okay, sure. Now, you've got a new name here, and immediately you think of that open-door policy giving an unknown voice a break. Well, this is one of Mike's two professional writing credits, and he pitched the story and wrote the first draft of the script, but that's only the beginning. The script that he submitted was not a final, and he didn't have time to give it another crack, Michael Piller then had everyone on the writing staff give it a shot. None of those drafts were approved either. Piller was ready to kill it, and Ira Stephen Bear called this one of the most difficult scripts to finish. Ultimately, what they got was a script put together by the entire writing staff, but the way writing credits work, you can only add so many names, so ultimately the credit reverts back to the originator, Mike Crone. All the attention was given here because the staff wanted to do an episode that broke out of the usual DS9 story and veered into heavy action. It was directed by Reza Badi, a new name for us, but Reza was well known in the industry long before DS9. He had so many genre credits to his name, probably best known for directing 18 episodes of Mission Impossible, plus several of The Six Million Dollar Man. Then there's The Incredible Hulk, Superboy, just so many. It was his daughter who was the Star Trek fan and got him up to speed on DS9. We'll see Reza's directing work a few more times on DS9. Reza was born in Iran, and he passed away in 2011 at the age of 81. 
Now, we have some interesting special effects in this episode. Gary Hutzel was responsible for the little phaser orb of death, and phasers are something you do on Star Trek, but not usually dozens of times with edits, with dialogue, etc. It was very time-consuming and a very expensive process. Now, not so much with the green plasma fire and the conduits. It was literally a replace-color function in a computer. So they are able to knock out that effect pretty easily. Now let's talk about guest stars. Guess what? It's a bottle show. So we really don't have much in the way of guest stars. Oh, sure, we get to welcome back uh, the wonderful recurring characters like Garrick, of course, played by Andrew Robinson, and Gul Dukat, played by Mark Alimo. And we do have one guest worth pointing out, though. Uh, Danny Goldberg plays Legate Kell, Danny, you have probably seen but may not have known the name. He turns up in some big movies like The Dark Knight and The Fugitive. This is just the start of his association with Star Trek, though. We will see him again in DS9, Voyager, and Enterprise, all in different roles. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mission Log. Your participation is very important to us. Please stay on the line. Someone will take care of you. Prologue. Miles O'Brien and Jake Sisko are clearing out the Cardassian computer in the old ore refinery on Deep Space Nine. They want to turn the facility into a thing that does other stuff. They lost track of time, which brought Commander Sisko round. Time for Jake's dinner. That puts all three of them in the ore refinery when it goes on lockdown. One of the files Jake and O'Brien tried to remove seems to have tripped an old security measure. The computer is saying something about unauthorized access and worker revolt. Then comes the video of Gul Dukat, telling the Bajoran workers trying to take over the refinery that they have eight minutes to return control to the Cardassians, or else. Act 1. Omps saw the same recording of Dukat. Hailing Cisco, they find out about the lockdown. Kira tries to beam them out, but the computer won't let that happen without the proper access code, presumably a Cardassian access code, since it suddenly thinks the station is still under Cardassian control. Odo pipes up. He's still got Cardassian access codes, though he's not sure his clearance is high enough to disable the security protocol. Quark stops by security to find out what's going on. He needles Odo. Odo needles him. The usual... Back in the refinery, O'Brien and the Siscos see no easy way out. Another Ducat recording is still urging the revolting workers to surrender, so Sisko tries it. He tells the computer, they surrender. This brings up another recording of Ducat, telling them to sit tight. Cardassian security will be round soon. Sisko figures he's bought them a few more minutes to figure out an escape route. The one they figure out is tricky. It involves Jake climbing through a pipe to a chute he can open, creating an escape route for the engineer and the commander. Not optimal, until another recording of Ducat derides the rebels for not surrendering. Neurocene gas will be released in three minutes. That's all the encouragement they need. Jake makes the track and the three escape just ahead of the debilitating toxin. This, however, creates a new problem. The computer thinks rebels have escaped the refinery into the station. Now everything goes on lockdown, with a new recording of Ducat threatening to kill every Bajoran on Deep Space Nine. 
Act 2. O'Brien and the Siscos have made their way to a loading bay, one where iridium, ore, and rock were separated before processing. Here, we've reached a dead end, and communications have stopped working. They're not working in ops either, so Kira's got a new idea. Phaser fire. She uses that to bust a lock on a door, which does no good because pushing the door aside reveals a force field. Dax figures that was put there to keep rebels from getting into ops, not officers from getting out. Not that it matters why it's there, it's there, which means Dax, Kira, and Bashir are going nowhere. Dax will work on hacking the computer. Maybe they can wipe the security program that way. In security, Odo and Quark find themselves trapped as well. Odo figures every hatch has a force field across it now. Back in the loading bay, brute force is not working to get O'Brien and the Siscos out, so maybe they can blast their way out, use the highly unstable iridium ore, hit it with a strong electrical charge, hopefully not die, and Bob's your uncle. Also, you can escape. It feels needless to say, but I will say it anyway. The plan works. Much later. In Ops, the computer responds to Dax hacking by frying Jedzia's hands with a force field. The Cardassians really took security seriously. Now a new warning from the recorded Dukat. The rebel's refusal to surrender is forcing his hand. In five minutes, the habitat ring will be flooded with neurocene gas. It's then that plain, simple Garrick wanders into Ops. His access codes still work, though they only work for him. Force fields reactivate as soon as he passes them. He can't do anything to help the people about to die on the habitat ring, except disable life support. See, that's how the neurocene gas will be delivered. Kill life support and you buy yourself 12 more hours to figure out a solution. The plan works until it doesn't. I mean, they disable life support, stopping the neurocene gas delivery, but the computer knows something's up and moves to the next security protocol. A recording of Guldicott says things look grim. So, in two hours, the space station will self-destruct. Act 3. Quark's trying to blast his way out of Odo's office with a phaser until Odo disarms him. So Quark shifts to feeling sorry for himself, though Odo, of all beings, gives Quark a pep talk. Seriously, there was nobody else around. In Ops, Dax's hands are on the mend. Garrick's security clearance lets him see what's going on in the DS9 systems, though he can affect no change. It looks like the only person who can disable the security system is Gul Dukat. Dax thinks they could try fooling the computer into thinking that Garrick is Dukat. It feels needless to say, but I'll say it anyway, this plan does not work. The computer steps up security again, dropping an automated rapid-fire phaser into the replicator in ops. Set to kill. Which it starts trying to do. It gets a red shirt, though the named characters find places to hide, leaving the deck open for Gul Dukat. The real one this time. He got a distress call from himself, a recording, of course, about Bajoran workers taking over Tarek Noor. Assessing the situation... Yeah, things look bad. Self-destruct's running and everything. Tell you what, Major Kira. Let's you and me chat. Dukat's suggestion is... interesting. He'd like a garrison on Deep Space Nine. He can transfer troops from his ship right now. 
In return, he'll turn off all the security systems, threatening their lives. Kira thinks this is ludicrous on a couple of levels. First, even the Cardassians would not honor an agreement reached under extreme duress. And second, no, I'll destroy this station before handing it back to Cardassians. With 30 minutes left before DS9 tears itself apart, Dukat says he'll give Kira time to think about the thousands of people that she's sentencing to death because of her distaste for Cardassians. He'll just pop over to his ship and come back in, say, 25 minutes. This plan does not work. When Dukat tries to beam out a new recording of a new Cardassian, higher level than Dukat, berates him for trying to abandon his post during a time of obvious rebellion. His access codes have been rescinded. All fail-safes have been nullified. Do us a favor, Dukat. Try dying like a Cardassian. Act 4. A futile attempt on Dukat's part to stop the self-destruct, and yeah, they are hosed. 25 minutes till everything goes kablooey. Their best bet? Try to disable all the force fields, blocking all the doors at once so they can get to a thing and redirect a thing to keep a thing from blowing up the station. This, by the way, is when O'Brien and the Ciscos blast their way out of the loading bay. Back in Ops, Ducat is telling Kira that they'll figure a way out of this, and Garrick has, once again had it with Ducat. They've been trading barbs since Ducat came aboard. How short-sighted Ducat is in Garrick's estimation. What a loser Garrick is in Ducat's estimation. Seriously, though, Ducat trying to flirt with Kira? Garrick thinks that's just nuts. Ducat says he totally wasn't flirting with Kira, which totally makes it seem like he was. Hey, Dax has an idea. About the force field, not about Ducat's chances with Kira. If they overload the power grid, they might be able to zap all the force fields and disable the dampening field that's cut off communications. This plan works. They're able to establish communications with Commander Sisko. He tells Kira to start abandoning the station. Meanwhile, she suggests he get to the thing and redirect the thing to keep the thing from blowing up the station. The commander, the engineer, and Jake head to it. Act 5. Kira calls Odo. His force field should be disabled, but it's not. It appears the force field around his office is on a different system than the rest. The Cardassians wanted to make especially certain that they could keep control of Odo. Quark says that's because they knew Odo to be honorable, knew that he would do the right thing no matter what. So that's going to get them killed when the station blows up, in six minutes. Thanks a lot. Of course, the station doesn't blow up. Oh, there's lots of peril. Cisco almost doesn't make it. Then he does. He's able to get to the thing and redirect the thing, keeping the thing from blowing up the station. No longer in a life and death situation, Quark and Odo are back to needling each other. Business as usual. The end. So excellent coverage, Ken, as always. And I know that we're at the part of the show uh, where we share our little notes with each other, just the, the funny, quirky things that we like to point out to each other and we point them out to our audience. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'm going to take this off on a little tangent for just a second, because as you were reading, I was so riveted and I was so focused on the ideas here 
um, that all I could think about, I created this entire backstory about the production within the production. Okay. So, so we have DS9, the production. Sure, that's the TV show they shot down the street at Paramount, right? But within the show, within the story, the context of the show, picture this, okay? Uh, you're a bunch of engineers. You're working on Tarek Noor. This station that, that, uh, they, they do stuff with ore. You have all these rooms. You got ops. You got all this stuff. And then they're like, all right, we need to create a flow chart, uh, for this very complex system of booby traps, hashtag booby trap. Um, this complex <laughs> system of lethal, uh, uh, lethal stop gaps. So if anybody were to try to get around our security system, we can stop it at all these different levels. So you've got all these people working on all of this stuff. You've got engineers, you've got software engineers, you've got people who have to build the stuff like, uh, uh, force field emitters and everything to go in. And then, then you actually have to have a production crew. To say, well, we've got to get Guldicott in here to record several pieces of video. We need to get makeup and hair. We have to get. We got to get lighting. We have to record for all these contingencies, and then, then they say, now we need to get a legate to come in here. Yeah. So if Gold Ducat messes up, we need him. And that legate's like, okay, look, I'll give you a couple of reads. I'll give you a couple of options. But I happen to know that Gold Ducat, kind of a self-serving coward. So let me give you a take where I call him out on that, assuming that he's going to leave. So if you want proof that we don't read each other's notes, mm-hmm. I will now do for you what I had planned to say. Okay. How many takes do you think Ducat had to do of each recording? <laughs> and and yeah. how many situations and and here, so so let's see we've got uh we got the one with the ore processing center well that makes sense sure and then the one where yeah, they take over yeah. ops good yeah i like that one uh the yeah. one where they take over the docking clamps that, that may, okay. now this one where they take over all the restrooms yeah it right. would be inconvenient right. i will grant you yeah. i'm just not sure how likely that is and taking over the gift shop i mean do we really mm-hmm. think that that's a danger no i'll give you the read i'll give you the read but i mean do we really think that that's a danger and my god are we actually going to blow up the station if somebody does and then and there's the the yes yeah, since he had not read that at all and there's a guy on the other side of the glass with the button keep he keeps telling to cut like okay just uh I'm sorry. Can you just one more take, please? Can you really hit uh, the word insurgents? Uh, thank you. And it's, I don't know. Uh, I believe you pronounce it sabotage. Uh, and then the Ducat's like, I, I say it sabotage. I say it how I want it. Let's you know? try one with less smile. Right. Well, that's just a little yes. less smile on this one, if you would. And go. This is, we've written a whole episode, a whole backstory to this episode of DS9. <laughs> And I so want to see this happen. Because here's the thing. I figured he's just sitting there like with a cam on his computer, right? But then there was one part where he like moved and the camera followed him while he moved. It's like, well, okay, so so we got a crew. We got people here now. We got lighting. Yeah. Probably better lit than any part of Tarek Noor ever was any other time. Sure. And those are probably union jobs, too. You got to have a guy to pull focus. You got to have a guy to, to actually move the camera. There's like a dozen people. This is the show. (laughs) <laughs> putting that together it, it is it is all right all right all right we got other stuff so so we'll have to move on but man that is the show right there um there's this moment that you described where uh bashir standing in front of a door and kira I, although i don't think you mentioned bashir but kira pulls out a phaser and she just she just like hey 
and just sort of waves the phaser, which is indicating, I'm about to shoot, get out of the way. Bashir takes one step to the right, and she shoots. Well, she's good. <laughs> so, so Ken, if I were like 30 feet from you, because yeah. Ops is big, yeah. 20, 30 feet maybe, and I, I'm just I'm holding a gun and there's a target. We're just doing target practice. I mean, I'm not talking like anything, but I just say, I just kind of give you the nod like, hey, Step, take a step over to the right. Right. Yeah, I don't think you're nearly as good with a phaser as she is. That's my guess. Because okay. she had years of training. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And also, she was, you know, insurgency or counterinsurgency or something. She was, you know, mm-hmm. she, she mm-hmm. had years of... Uh, you, I mean, you know offense. But I would probably step a little bit further away than he did at that point. I, I'm just saying anybody, anybody who's good. I'm not, I'm not bad. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not bad, you know. But, but anybody, like, if somebody who's really, really good, like a really practiced... I'm still, I'm getting way out of the way. I think she's so good that the only reason she even warned him was so he wouldn't, like, step in front of the phaser fire. I mean, Mm, I I think she's... She's going to do it anyway. Yeah, I think she's a dead shot, no question. But she is saying to herself, I should warn him because if he continues walking over towards that thing that I'm going to shoot, well, then I'm going to shoot him, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Mm -hmm. I think that's that's really, that's probably all that happened there would be my guess. I think you're right. Do you want to hear, by the way, the last words that Jake Sisko ever heard? What was that? Follow this sound, Jake. <laughs> it's kind of amazing to me because we've seen the whole thing. First of all, I don't understand what happened to Jake. He's like, he's like, so, so O'Brien's like, so listen, you're going to go up there. You're going to take a right. Yeah. And then Jake yeah. gets up to the top of the thing. He's like, oh, it goes in two directions. What do I do? And Cisco uh-huh. says, hey, follow this sound. He starts banging on the pipe that his one and only son is in with a giant stick. Right. Right. And there's no way yeah. that Jake's like, like, like forever. Like Jake should have come out of that scene just like, you know, like, like, you know, rubbing his finger in his ear, trying to get <laughs> right. sound back. Completely disoriented. Going, yeah. knock it off, guys. Come on. <laughs> I love it. And then it's next week on a very special Deep Space Nine. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and Odo, he says to Quark, stay away from my computer. Yeah. See, why? I, my computer, I step away for 60 seconds and the password thing comes on again. Yes. You know? Yes. Yeah. Well, he's in security, though. So he figures, you know, what's the big deal? Yeah, this is secure. I'm, yeah. I'm thinking maybe he just didn't want Quark to see his uh, his uh, search history. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. And it's yeah. and it's the Hollow Suite all over again. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, weird thing to find out, by the way. Uh, so iridium, mm-hmm. highly unstable. Yes, I think Cisco says something like, "Isn't iridium highly unstable?" Yeah. And O'Brien says, "You mean the stuff in the cart that we've been banging as hard as we can into a wall?" <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, oh we we learned so much about iridium in this episode. Yeah, it's good. Also, I don't want to be that guy. Yeah. But the iridium ore, nowhere near the hole that they actually blew in the door with the iridium. Was it? I didn't really take a good it was look like, at It that. was like in a line across the bottom. So you would okay, expect the yeah. door to like, you know, maybe blow out from the bottom. Right. Not have oh, a yeah. giant yeah, it's hole in the right middle in the of middle. it. Yeah. Yeah. Because actually, yeah. I, went, I, I watched it the first time. I thought, well, how'd that happen? And I thought, well, I must have missed it. They must have piled up the iridium ore. And they really yeah. didn't. I'm also wondering how they ground up the iridium to make the, you know, the Bugs Bunny fuse to go blow up the iridium, yeah. Yeah. which which also uh, you need like a really high electrical charge to blow up iridium. Yeah. So they uh, started a teeny is... tiny little fire yeah. that go, I mean, really what they needed was a match. 
Yeah, that's that's all they needed. Yeah, yeah. Just- but but they they had the electric. They had that cable that that is so electric. It's just glowing like the whole cable, not yeah. just what's in the end of the cable. The whole cable is glowing, <laughs> yeah. and you can just pick it up and and throw it over your shoulder and hang on to it. I want that all over my place. <laughs> I, I think that would just look super cool. Now, do you actually want it to be electric? Like, do you want it to like, you know, I can, I can just like plug everything into it or plug it into everything or, you know, start a iridium fire or something. I I would say all I needed to do is to blow up iridium. I don't care what else it does. Yeah. You're going to need iridium then. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) We we, we can get that. (laughs) Yeah. That's just, that's just rocks. That's no problem. Well, no, they separate it from the rocks, you see. Oh yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Or you got to get the iridium out of the ore. Yeah. I got it. It's the whole thing. Uh, I'll wait. Um, Oh, I, I like uh, there's a, that nice little bit between Bashir and uh, Garrick. Uh, Bashir says something along the lines like, I wonder how many other Cardassian tailors have authorization codes. And he's, I, I wouldn't know. By the way, your pants are ready. It's just I, it's a, some really nice uh, dialogue in this. And um, oh, hey, here's the thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've talked about replicator technology before. Yes. And like how if you're on the Enterprise and you're getting a wedding gift, you can just go down to the replicator shop and like make me a, a glass thing. And if they don't like that, it's just going to get re-replicated into like, you know, pudding or whatever. Right. And this, hey, replicator, make me a spinny, shooty laser death device that kills everything in front of it except for Cardassians. I got to think that was a mod. Yeah, okay. Okay, yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. I don't think, like, I don't think Jake could order one of those from the replicator. You know, okay, all right. Well, I it just, I mean, the precedent is there now. That's true. So, yeah, like, it knows how to make it and take it away. So, yeah, I'm worried a bit. Um, uh, let's do a little DS9 math. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kira says there must be hundreds of people on board who are in danger, and then 10, 15 minutes later in the episode, Ducat asks her if she would allow 2,000 people to die simply because she doesn't like Cardassians. And I thought already people were moving out of DS9 since the Dominion became a thing. So like a couple of seasons ago, it's what, 330 people, somewhere around there. Yeah. And uh, so there, there's a lot of uh, math that I'm not going to follow there. I think there was a convention. Oh, right. <laughs> yes. Okay, good. Good. That's my good guess. Call. I think there are probably... Lots of yeah. extra people that week. Who, by the way, were totally cool the second everything was done. Did you notice? Oh that? yeah. Like while yeah. while while uh, while Odo and Quark are walking away, people are just mm-hmm. walking around. Like, oh, thank God we didn't die. I've got shopping to do. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know exactly. That's exactly what happens. Yeah. Um, although, don't tell any of them about what happened in ops. Because when the, you know, shooty spinny laser death device gets uh, replicated, right. just some nameless crew member who, who is, he, look, he's high up enough to work in ops, which is cool. Yeah. But literally, there is no time to grieve for that guy. Yeah. Like, it does not a, not a name, barely a face. It's like that one who died um, on the Defiant. When, right. When, the, when Bashir yeah. was like, oh, he's dead. I'm I'm driving. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right. Kind of like that. Hey, uh, you know, you talk about that person, though. How about the people sitting at the life support control panel? Two of them, by the way, both Bajorans. Uh, how about the people sitting at the life support control panel when Kira's about to shoot that? Kind and of like she's at it again. I know, right? She, yeah. And they, they can't follow orders for anything because she says, get down. So <laughs> they stand up and run. But I'm also thinking, first of all, like, what else does that do? 
because they're sitting there working away and apparently they're working away so diligently they're paying no attention when they're like, I think we're gonna have to blow up that machine behind those two guys. <laughs> right? Because <laughs> they were right. totally surprised. She was like, hey, you or something. And they turn around and she's like, get down. And they're like, oh, God, I better stand up. And then they run yeah. away. And then, uh, yeah, they're, they're, I assume they're fine. They were not one of the red shirts who bought it. Or maybe they were. Uh, maybe, but uh, but look, I mean, just uh, take away. Look, I I thought that on DS Nine there's a no weapons policy anyway, but apparently Kira in ops will shoot anything if it doesn't work. Is it really surprising that that would be her go to though? No, not really. Yeah, okay. I, I I do have one other thing, and I'm wondering if mm-hmm. we should be concerned about this. Uh, when this episode ends, mm-hmm. they only have ten hours to get life support fixed. Because oh, because they fried yeah. life support, right? And that was the whole thing. And they're like, we're, so we're going to knock out life support and uh, we'll all die in 12 hours. But that's better than dying in like, you know, 30 minutes. And then we'll have like 11 hours to fix life support. And now we're down to 10. And everybody's like, wow, glad everything's fine now. And I have a feeling that like, at, like 10 hours and 45 minutes, somebody's going to go, I really feel like there was something else we were supposed to do. I love the idea of a Tarek Noor gift shop. I picture rows and rows of shop glasses and floating pens, bumper stickers that say, Honk if you love Tarek Noor. We'll play a bit more civil defense in a moment, but first, a word from ExpressVPN. I went traveling last week, John. Yeah, you you were gone for a while, all over the place. I was uh, all over the place. I was, well, kind of, I guess, but not really. When you're there, you think, I could be further north, and I could probably be further east, too. Sure, yeah, but you're close enough. Yeah, I took the old computer with me, Mm -hmm. with with my microphone, because I needed to do some recording. Mm-hmm. Dropping G's all over the place, by the way. <laughs> yeah. I, I will say the hotel where I stayed, the Wi-Fi was absolutely excellent. Oh. But it was still hotel Wi-Fi, which, yeah. you know, is not the most secure thing on the best of days. Um, I got to tell you, though, I, I did, as I've said many times on this show and other shows, I used ExpressVPN, and I was able to record... That's actually why I took my microphone, because I got I tried to get ahead before I left, but I had to do a show while I was gone, and it was a show that I do with another person, so there has to be, like, no lag, there has to be no skip, and I was able to do all of that on hotel Wi-Fi with ExpressVPN. Wow. I mean, that's the thing. If, if, you're not, if you don't do that kind of thing often, or if you don't try to do that kind of thing often, you might not appreciate how amazing that is. With ExpressVPN, the information you send and receive stays between you and the website to which you're connecting. That means bad guys don't get your banking info, and data brokers don't get information about you to sell. Now, the thing is, to do that, generally speaking, a VPN will sacrifice speed. Other VPNs that I've used in the past, I mean, they handle the security part fine, but they do that at the expense of speed. Mm. And ExpressVPN does not forget the express part they 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 keep you safe but they do it you know speedy as well which is totally rad protecting yourself with express vpn costs less than 7 bucks a month it is rated the number 1 vpn service by tech radar and it comes with a 30 day money back guarantee so if you ever use public wifi hotel uh, uh, coffee shop airport if you ever use public wifi and want to keep your information secure and don't want to sacrifice speed express vpn is the solution. 
Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash mission log. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N, expressvpn.com slash mission log for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash mission log to find out more. And a big thanks to ExpressVPN for sponsoring this week's show. Civil defense, John. Civil defense. I gotta say, I like this episode better when it was called The Arsenal of Freedom. Ooh, ouch. Oh, we're already going there, huh? Well, I mean, I'm just... It's Here's the thing. The Arsenal of Freedom gave us lots of stuff to think about, right? Gave us lots of, like, you know, uh, uh, technology run amok. uh, Just, uh, I can't think of the exact words I'm trying to hit now. Basically there was this system that was that was so set up on security and so set up on selling weapons that it outlived anybody who could actually benefit from it 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 mm-hmm. may have destroyed the people on the planet that made it it was certainly ready to destroy anybody else who came along and there was this not comedic thing going on with the arsenal of freedom but there was this, you know, weird, like, okay, we're going to kick it up a notch, we're going to kick it up a notch, we're going to kick it up a notch. Every time you thought that they had actually solved the problem, something else would come along and make it a thousand times worse. Sure. I kept thinking all the way through this episode about Arsenal of Freedom, except this episode just made me miss Arsenal of Freedom, <laughs> because Arsenal of Freedom, like, had sort of, like, big sort of moral ideas to present, or at least moral ideas that we could pull out. Yeah. Whereas this just kind of seemed like, oh, look, you can't trust the Cardassians again. I don't know. I mean, first of all, did it make you think of Arsenal of Freedom? And second, more. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, uh, all right. So I feel like we're, we're kind of we're going to blend uh, uh, Act 3 and Act 4 of our show together because I... I since there aren't really heavy morals, meanings, messages, yeah, a lot of this discussion is going to be about what we liked, what we didn't like. Um, I didn't immediately think of Arsenal of Freedom. Really? I'm glad that you brought it. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad that you brought it up, though, uh, because I think what you have there is a good episode of Star Trek that has the the action and adventure component, but it also has the moral meaning message. It, it's this this rumination on the insanity of war and kind of the arms race aspect of war. We keep being creative about ways to kill each other, and uh, how far can we push that? Mm-hmm. To 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 your point, to the extent that it outlives us all, because of course it will outlive us all. Um, but here's the thing. I also thought of an episode like uh, like Starship Mine. Hmm. Okay. Here's an episode where we called it, it was called, when it came out, Die Hard in Space. And it was just a fun action show with Picard trying to be a step ahead of the people that were taking over the Enterprise and using technology to try to, uh, to, try to steal his ship. And... That that was a show that doesn't have a, a heavy-handed message, but it's fun. Mm-hmm. And it's fun partly because I think it came at the right time where we got to see Picard as an action hero because we didn't always get to see that. Um, and it, it, it sort of uh, it, it kept our attention because of the uh, uh, because of the suspense in it. Um and I remember being okay with that episode not having 
a definitive statement. Okay. We were like, yeah, yeah, this is fun. This is Picard running around being a hero. Um, now the, the, the antagonists in this, it's kind of fun for a bit because the antagonists are on video and, and then we get our antagonist in person, but then we take the power away from the antagonist and say, Oh, nope. Now you're just stuck in it with all of us because this thing you created has, uh, has, has gone beyond even what you thought would happen. So I, I was okay with this playing with playing with sort of uh, a production style playing with with the fun of that and not landing on not landing on a on a major message but i i I see where you're coming from though because okay here we have this huge backstory with the bajorans and the cardassians and we have this weird place ds9 that that falls in between still with this uh, this tension between them and uh, and can we do something that has some meaning in it other than just fighting booby trap after booby trap hashtag booby trap <laughs> um so I, yeah i i guess if they had attempted to do a story that had a uh a deep thought behind it I, sure but it sounds like they had trouble developing this anyway so what do we end up with well we end up with an action adventure show that you can kind of pull out of the ds9 mythology a bit, or I shouldn't say the mythology because clearly you have the backstory there of why it exists the way it does, but you're pulling it out of the, the big story arc of DS9 and just sort of letting this one exist on its own. Mm-hmm. I, I don't hate it for that. Okay. You know? Well, and, okay, see, because yeah. now you are going to, to the next segment. I am. I am. And I apologize if I set us off in that way because I didn't really mean to. It's just the whole time I was watching it, all I could think about was the arsenal of freedom. Wow. Yeah. I, so, yeah, I don't know. Well, I mean, not the whole time, because there's there's other stuff as well. Like, I, I do kind of wonder what kind of Ferengi Quark's dad was. <laughs> yeah. Well, you learned a new rule. I know you love the rules. I do. Yeah. I do. Yeah. But I don't understand, though, because, like, you know, so Quark, like all Ferengi, lives by the rules of acquisition, right? Yeah. 75th rule of acquisition. Home is where the heart is, but the stars are made of latinum. And yet... Quark's dad apparently wanted Quark to stay home, saying there's plenty of business opportunities right outside his front door, in direct opposition to rule of acquisition number 75. I, I'm going to, I'm going to headcanon this. Okay. Uh, uh, okay, because, yes, uh, there is that book, The Rules of Acquisition, that Quark wrote with uh, Iris Stephen Bear. <laughs> um, but I, if I'm not mistaken, I, I think there are some rules that are missing and and i'm going to say that like any uh any text that is is revered and followed to the t by by any true believer right mm-hmm. there there has to be some conflicting rules in there so i bet you cork's father had some rule way way at the end of the book probably in the 200s somewhere that something like uh f- you know keep family close to home because they're cheap labor or or something like that. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Because then then the father could be a true believer and say like, yeah, I'm you know I'm following the rules. This is the rule. And then Quark could be like, well, I'm following this rule and the, the hidden impasse until somebody breaks. But I think we all agree the one about uh, Morn is the best one. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. That is truly. And, and speaking of Morn. Okay, so realistically, uh, I don't know if Gul Dukat 
could just, you know, force anyone to honor the supposed deal, uh, even Cardassia, and just leave a bunch of troops there. Mm-hmm. And realistically, look, I, I have to wonder if Kira would allow DS9 to self-destruct. There's a bunch of civilians on board, shop owners. There's Morn. For one, did, did anybody check in on him, see how he's doing? I bet maybe he's got a way out. I, I bet if anybody has got an escape plan, it's Morn. Uh, I think Morn was probably laid back on the bar, mouth open under a tap of whatever. Because <laughs> Quark yeah. was not there. Right. Maybe Rom was there. But, you know, yeah. maybe Rom had gone to hide someplace. Or maybe Rom was, like, you know, caught behind a force field back in the... Uh, Back in the, uh, uh, back where they keep the liquor, the yeah. li- the liquor room. We're gonna call it that because <laughs> no, it's, it's because it just have. completely escapes me. Yeah. I I will say I was kind of amused by the levels of security. Mm-hmm. Uh, I said that the only thing I could think of was the arsenal of freedom. I was also reminded of Tribunal in this episode. And what's weird yeah. is I can't put my finger on why exactly I was reminded of Tribunal, except that each ridiculous level of security is ridiculous. Hmm. And so sort of like, you know, there was a, there was a ridiculousness about tribunal that was also um, scary because it seemed plausible. Arsenal of freedom seemed kind of plausible at the time. I mean, obviously there's lots of science fiction going on, but just the sort of the the continued escalation of arms as you were talking about. Um, And, and, and certainly we had that, you know, in this as well. Um, to see Ducat Conradin is kind of amusing. Uh, the, the, the phrase that I thought of, actually, because it seems like this was something that Ducat sort of orchestrated, although, of course, then there was that other guy who came in afterwards who's like, wow, Ducat, you're a loser. You know, the, this is a recording guy. Um, yeah. uh, too clever by half is the term mm-hmm. that came to mind, uh, thinking about uh, what Ducat hath wrought in this episode. <laughs> If you get to the Tarek Nor gift shop, please get me a snow globe with Deep Space Nine swimming in glitter. Also, get me a pecan log. Well, I hope we didn't give it all the way in the last segment, but uh, civil defense or civil defense depending on how you're feeling, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Defense. <laughs> this is the part of the show where we wrap it up, we see how we felt about the episode, and, and we ask each other, not only did the episode hold up, but were there morals, meanings, or messages to learn? So, Ken, what did we learn from the episode? But first, does the episode hold up? For me personally? Well, yeah, we, it, it's, it's, a, it's a show with our personal opinions yeah, in it. Yeah. yeah, for me personally, no, this episode doesn't hold up. You said that it was a bottle episode earlier. Mm-hmm. It doesn't quite feel like a bottle episode to me. It feels like a bunch of bottle episodes, but none of them fleshed out enough to make it worth it to me. Mm. I I will tell you, having heard what you said in the beginning about how many writers it went through, <laughs> I'm I'm not surprised yeah. because there's just there like there's everything thrown at the wall in this episode, and yet for an episode that was supposed to be action oriented, really very little action. Mm. I mean, I, I'm thinking about like when you talked about um, uh, Starship Mine. I mean, there was actually there was actually action in that episode. There's a lot of there's a lot of like stuff that happens 
like when Gal Dukat is standing there and the phasers are firing off around him, that was actually a fascinating scene. That was a great scene, I yeah. thought. Um, but even that's, I mean, I, I guess that's sort of action. And most of the action was things like, you know, Jake crawling through that tube, but we didn't actually see him doing that. Or, yes, they crawled past the fire, but I don't know. Uh, for an action episode, it didn't feel very action-y. So it didn't even really read that way to me. Um I will tell you, and maybe it's because this is, you know, me, mm-hmm. I, I think I would have loved this episode if we had spent it with Quark and Odo. Hmm. If we'd had them considering how they ended up with, you know, mid-level clearances under the Cardassians, right? Because neither one's a Cardassian. Mm-hmm. I don't think either one of them would say that they're bad, but they seriously ended up with mid-level clearance in an occupying force that had left stuff set up to kill them now, Right. It would have been interesting to see them talk about, you know, why they were there initially and why they were still there. And and we could have actually learned more about those characters other than just the... Because I thought we were actually going to get a moment where Odo was begrudgingly showing uh, Quark a bit of respect in a way that he actually understands. But then at the end, Odo takes it back. And so I don't know which time is true at that point. And the whole thing just devolves into, oh, it's just them being them again, right? Mm-hmm. Which eh, kind of bummed me out. The last thing, um, I'm tired of the hints that aren't hints about Garrick. I mean, it's just getting, I mean, just e- either tell us or don't, but is it going to be seven seasons of this? Really? Um, <laughs> forgive me if I brought this up before, but I thought this was done very well with Shepard Book on Firefly and Serenity. Um, something happens, I can't remember, but but basically uh, the the occupying force, the government, the the people that you know the brown coats were against, uh, pull over Serenity, and and it's it's really going to be bad. It's going to be curtains, and then uh, Shepherd Book goes and talks to the cops for like a minute, maybe, and then they're free to leave. And Mal says words to the effect of, "You have to tell me about that someday." To which Shepard Book replies, no, I don't. And that's it. And there is, there's like so much weight to that. And it leaves so much to the imagination. And the Garrick stuff is just starting to feel like Abbott and Costello at this point. It's like, oh, I'm nobody, but look at all the stuff I can do. But don't worry about me. I'm just plain simple Garrick, but I could get you killed. But, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it was interesting in the first season. And now it's now he's just he's almost like Deus Ex Machina at this point. Oh, we're having problems with the Cardassians. Well, let's get Garrick. Garrick, but he's just a tailor. No, he's not. We all know it now. So quit, quit with the pretense. It's interesting to me actually that you find it amusing each time because it's gotten it's gotten old for me. I, I think the dialogue they write around it is amusing. I uh, I don't disagree with you. Like you, you've got to take him somewhere. And and I like that we, um, you know, I, I like that we've gotten Garrick killing a couple of Cardassians and, yeah. and you know, he, he's done some stuff. But, yeah, at, at a certain point. Don't you have to stop the pretense at that point, though? The Wire, honestly, the Wire should have been the turning point for this character. Yeah, because yeah, for sure. Why the heck would they put a wire in this guy's head, right? <laughs> right. Unless he was really something. So at that point, I think I really honestly think you have to drop the pretense. Well, obviously you don't have to drop the pretense because they didn't. But I mean, it just it doesn't read anymore to me. 
Well, and here's the thing: you, you can drop the pretense without dropping the cover. Like I, I sure. think that I, I think that he and Bashir can have a, a better understanding of each other. And part of that understanding is, look, you do your thing in your tailor shop. You know that that's a good cover for you. You right. hang out there, and we know that we can count on you when we need. Yeah, uh, to bypass a Cardassian security system or whatever the case may be. Um, but yeah, I would like to see a little more development, a little more uh, uh, truth in that. But I, I wonder, you know, had Firefly gone on for longer than it's what, 15 episodes or? Yeah, 15 episodes in a movie, I think. 15 yeah, or yeah. 16, yeah. And of course, in the, oh, spoiler, well, we know what happens to book in the movie. But yeah. had it gone on to a, a, a life of, you know, longer TV series w- without what happens to book, do you think that's something that would have they would have mined again and it would have become an annoyance? Yes. You know? Well, I don't know that it would have become an annoyance. That's a thing. So but I mean, this is for a podcast that we're never going to do. I'm, yeah. I'm rewatching Buffy the Vampire Slayer right now, and they drop a hint in season three about something that's going to happen in season five. So, mm-hmm. yes, mm-hmm. I think we would have gotten more about book at some point, but I don't think it would have been a constant because in those 15 episodes, it came up one time where somebody yeah. said, you know, I'm going to need to know more about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Book's like, why? <laughs> right? Right. Or, or actually, doesn't even say why. He's like, no, you don't. You don't need to know anything. You got out of the situation. That's as much as you need to know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't think it would have been like the, you know, the irascible shepherd book pretending like he's not anything when he actually is. He knows mm-hmm. exactly what he is. And everybody else can just be quiet about it if they want to keep being what they are. Which would have been a more interesting thing to well, whatever. It's however old it is and stuff. And there's plenty more to talk about, John. What do you got? Sure. I look. I as I said in the last segment, um, I'm I'm not mad at this episode. I think there are good things in it. I think uh, Gul Dukat. Look, it's sort of redundant to say that he's great. It's like in Next Gen saying, oh, Patrick Stewart is great. Marco Limo is great as Guldicott. And it's fun to see him as the all-powerful image on screen and then see his power stripped away and have to cooperate. So that's Mm -hmm. a a fun moment for him. Um, But here's the thing. It's an episode by rote. Create a puzzle to solve, raise the stakes, figure out the puzzle, done. I, uh, better than move along home in that regard, <laughs> you know. Um, so here's the thing. While it's not remarkable, there are some elements that I really like. So, uh, like I said, Marco Limo, um, but there are a, a good number of other scenes that I really loved. Uh, so o- Odo and Quark doing their routine at the end. I really liked that. I, I liked that if what we got was the truth of Odo saying uh, these nice things about uh, Quark, but then when the uh, when the tension is gone and he gets to sort of backtrack that and say, uh, no, no, no I, I said it because I thought we were going to die. Look, both of those things can be true. And I think that's all right. I think that's a realistic thing for Odo. And having that little bit of comedy at the end, uh, I think they both played it well. Um, I liked, uh, there were some action things here that I liked. I, I liked the pause after Cisco saves the station at the end. It's a subtle thing, but there's this, this moment where he's exhausted and alone, and they just 
they just let the camera stay on that for a moment. And mm-hmm. there's not a big swelling up of the music and it's not a heroic thing. It's just like, ugh, that's over. That's done. And um, I also want to give some recognition to Jake here, too, because I got a moment with him right that they got wrong with Wesley most of the time, which is saving the day or in this case, saving someone else, you know, Jake saving uh, O'Brien throughout act five. I liked his nervousness. I liked his concern. I liked how they played him instead of just being as they maybe would have done with Wesley. Like, Oh, I can figure this out. I'll push all these buttons because I'm a genius and I'll save this. And there's something more realistic here about the way they're playing Jake. Um, and I think that this this episode has this kind of weird, dark sense of humor, which I appreciated, too. So here's the thing. It holds up to me for being a good execution of an otherwise unremarkable story. Because it's just like I said, here are, the, here are the traps, here are the things you have to figure out, the puzzles you have to solve. Now go, and we know you'll solve it by the end, because everybody will be back for next week's episode. So... On the surface, yeah, there's really not a whole lot there, but I feel like they tried to make something out of the character moments that we got, even though, as you rightfully point out, uh, a lot of that is disjointed. It feels like multiple shows, um, but maybe that's part of what interested me, is keeping these people isolated and see how they each deal with their situation on their own until they can come back together. Uh, so I, I give it a pass. I, I found a lot to enjoy in this, and uh, I think they made the best of what they have here. Um, so the question is, now you brought up Arsenal of Freedom. Was there anything to learn, anything to uh, to pull out of this in terms of morals or uh, or ideas or deep thoughts? About the only thing I can think of is maybe he who lives by the sword shall die by the sword, except not really because they all get away. Yeah. I mean, there is there is something to Gul Dukat being caught in the whole thing. And, of course, we want Gul Dukat to stick around, and I like Marco Limo, and so I don't want him to die. Mm-hmm. But, like, even for our bad guys, there's really, there's really no risk. Yeah. And, and so th- maybe that's part of what makes an episode like this difficult to pull off. In a way mm-hmm. that, I mean, certainly you could say the same thing about uh, about um, uh, TNG. Although I go back to one of my favorite episodes, Time Squared, uh, the Enterprise explodes, and 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 even though it doesn't, I mean, mm-hmm. even though you know we're going to get back to a place where we have the Enterprise at the end, they all have to face death, and they actually all have to die, and that's a harder thing to do on Deep Space Nine. Plus, a lot of times. Um, I mean, the Enterprise would leave a planet where things didn't go well. The crystalline entity would come and, like, hoover everything up. Or, you know, uh, somebody that we met in this episode would die in this episode or something along those lines. And so, I mean, had Gul Dukat died, I mean, I think we all would have been a bit surprised. But it also would have at least ratcheted up the stakes. Because knowing, as you say, they're all going to be back for next week, Mm -hmm. throw all the peril at it you want to. I'm not going to worry. I mean, unless unless you write something incredibly rich, which, as you pointed out, there were about twelve people writing this, and so yeah, right. you know the chance of getting getting uh, that 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 depth or that incredible uh, richness when you're writing by committee uh, yeah. it seems like maybe a more difficult thing. So 
I mean, I guess the answer to your question is no. (laughs) (laughs) He who lives by the sword dies by the sword unless, you know, he's a character that we like and we want to see him again, in which case, yeah, it's just stuff that happened, but it'll be fine. What about you? Well, yeah, I mean, I I agree that there are interesting story points here, but do they really actually land on something? And it's funny. So you went to Arsenal of Freedom. Mm -hmm. I actually went to Doomsday Machine Hmm. uh, as well, which, you know, could be looked at as the precursor to the Arsenal of Freedom. Uh, So it doesn't have to be a deep learning episode. But I, I thought about an idea that came up from that, which is, again, who built this thing? And Doomsday Machine, who built that, and Arsenal of Freedom, who built those little uh, those little devices, which fortunately we get Vincent Chiavelli at the end explaining it all to us. Um, but who built it? Why? What were they thinking? And sure, you can build weapons and defenses full of complexity and full of power, but then do we run a risk of our creations getting out of hand and ultimately destroying us? So where episodes like Doomsday Machine and Arsenal of Freedom may really have taken on those ideas and those concepts, here we just have the mechanics of that running uh, amok, uh, running out of hand. Uh, so you could infer ideas like that from this if you're really trying, but go back and watch Doomsday Machine or, or Arsenal of Freedom. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Hey, there are a bunch of podcasts coming out of the Roddenberry Podcast Network. So many that we call it a network. Though you've got your Mission Log, Mission Log Live, Women at Warp, Priority One, The Trek Files, and the latest from the network, Daily Star Trek News. Find them all at podcast.roddenberry.com. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, that'd be great. Patreon.com slash Mission Log is the place to do that. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM at Trek.FM. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit TrekMovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Meridian. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. John and Ken went to Tarek Noor, and all I got was this lousy mouse pad. Transmission. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the Fileo fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.